Hello, it's Sarah Baldwin, your host of Electrify This, a new podcast focused on the movement to electrify everything as a viable path to decarbonize and revitalize all sectors of our economy. Each month, I connect with experts to explore the policy and market issues underpinning the shift to electrify transportation, buildings, and industry. Today's episode, All I Want for the Holidays is an All-Electric Home. We know that where we live impacts our health and the money we spend on energy bills, but our homes also have a sizable impact on our carbon footprints. The U.S. building sector represents 9% of the nation's total greenhouse gas emissions, with the bulk of emissions associated with burning gas, oil, and propane for space and water heating, clothes drying, and cooking. Nearly 90 million existing U.S. households burn fossil fuels on site. And add to this fact that nearly 1.3 million new housing units were built in 2019 alone, 40% of which were built with fossil-fueled appliances and heating equipment. Effectively, we are digging our climate hole deeper and deeper with every new home built to run on fossil fuels. But the opportunity to reduce emissions and create a new market for efficient all-electric homes powered by an increasingly clean electric grid is ripe across the country. Yet the push to advance building electrification measures is being met with pushback and attacks from fossil fuel industries and the politicians they fund. As the year comes to a close, and as many of us get ready to settle in at home for the holidays, we take a closer look today at the movement to electrify our homes and the role that building codes play in making our homes healthier, cleaner, more affordable, and more climate-friendly. Today, I'm joined by three experts here to discuss the efforts underway to clean up and electrify our homes. First, we have Kim Cheslack. Director of Codes for New Buildings Institute, where she supports the organization's broader engagement in building policy development, with an emphasis on national-based codes, stretch codes, and existing building policy solutions. Kim has over a decade of experience in both commercial and residential code adoption and compliance, and was instrumental in the formation of Washington, D.C.'s Green Building Division. Kim, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sarah. Great to be here. Next, we have Panama Bartholomew, Director of the Building Decarbonization Coalition, which is a multi-sector forum adv- advocating for and creating solutions for our pollution-intensive building stock. Panama has extensive international and national experience, working on climate solutions in over 30 countries and serving as the Deputy Director of the California Energy Commission's Efficiency and Renewables Division and Chair Advisor, among many other things you've done in your career. So welcome, Panama. Thanks, Sarah. Excited to be here. And finally, we have Sean Armstrong, Managing Principal of Redwood Energy. Sean has worked for 25 years in building electrification, leading the retrofit and new construction of almost 10,000 all-electric apartments and homes, co-authoring practical guides to building electrification. Sean has won Grand Prize Designs Award from the United Nations and the Building Industry Association and the U.S. Department of Energy. So welcome to the show, Sean. Glad to be here. Thanks, Sarah. Well, all three of you are building electrification experts and building code experts with rich experience, and we're going to try and cover a lot today uh, to help people better understand this very dynamic and yet complex space. Um, you know, we all live and work in buildings, and we go to them every day without thinking twice, but it takes a lot to build a building, it takes a lot to retrofit a building, and it certainly takes a lot to set the codes and standards that underpin the building sector. 
So I think we're going to start there. And before we dive into some of the nitty gritty stuff, I think it would be helpful to provide our listeners with a little bit of a primer on building codes. Uh, What are they? How do they work? And who decides what? So Kim, since you are the resident building code expert, I'll uh, have you give us the, uh, the overview on building codes. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Um, It's a little bit boring, I think. Um, People often tell me that this part of my job is the most boring part, but building codes are the legal minimum standards that are set to tell designers and builders what both must be present and what cannot be present in a building for construction, renovation, and repair. Um, They're quite literally published books that just have line-by-line requirements for both that design and construction phase. Uh, Codes are typically developed by code and standard writing bodies. A few examples of these that maybe the listeners have heard of are the International Code Council or ICC, um, the National Fire Protection Association or NFPA, and the American Society of Heating, Refrigerating, and Air Conditioning Engineers or ASHRAE. Uh, Each of those bodies has its own specific set of rules on how codes are updated um, and written, but generally the processes are pretty similar. Uh, Ideas are submitted to modify or be added to the code. They're discussed, and then they're voted on by either a specific committee or a larger body of members uh, and get published. Um, The ones that get through get published into the next version of the codes. Uh, These updates happen about every three years. Um, That accounts for best practices and changes in the industry. Um, and if all that sounds very bland, it, it does, but it actually in the room making those decisions, it can get very heated, um, if you can believe that. And um, there's a lot of emotion running high at times. I like um, to it, it's like the legislature, you know, like we have federal or state legislatures. Yeah, it can be boring if you're not paying attention, but when you're in those groups, like that, that is the, the rawest politics possible. Mm-hmm. People are in actual argument. And they're trying to get what they want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. And and the decisions that are made that rule everybody's lives. So it's not all. It's, I mean, it's your house. It's, your, it's where you spend 90% of your life is this building that can get built according to those rules. Absolutely. Yeah, it's true. That's very true. And and Kim, who, um, who are the folks who are part of these uh, code-setting bodies? Um, so depending on the body, like I said, there's different rules. Um, and so the, some of them are formed, um, through committees. And so those committees are, you, people would apply typically experts in various, um, pieces of the field that that are attached to one or multiple of the codes would apply to be on those committees. Um, like the, how one gets selected to be on a committee, there's typically a process um, within each body that goes through and reviews applications and, you know, makes decisions on who would get appointed to those committees. Um, and then in the case of something like the ICC, there is actually an open governmental voting process currently. So uh, at the end of all of the code development, anyone who is a governmental representative, which is most of the employees um, that you think of as being in your building departments, uh, can also be sustainability departments, um, fire marshal's offices actually get to vote. Um, and so it's a larger number of people deciding on those measures. Gotcha. Um, and, the, and there's a lot to unpack within each of the entities that you mentioned, but in the interest of time, I want to keep us moving broadly. I mean, you've, you've identified what they are. Why are they so important? And 
any of you can jump in on this. Um, maybe Kim, you can articulate your thoughts and then we'll uh, see what Panama and Sean have to say. Sure. I mean, I think at its most broad, code set a level playing field for all new buildings and help keep us safe. Um, advances in code can go pretty well unnoticed, but there are things that we see very important coming out of code development bodies. Things like fire sprinklers that prevent loss of property and life. Um, and honestly, on more of like potentially a social aspect, things like single user bathrooms get addressed. Um, in codes and how you can have, you know, dual sex bathroom um, and stuff like that. So I know we're focused on energy here today, um, but there are other things going on in the backgrounds of codes that I think are really important for people to understand. In sort of in energy efficiency and, and electrification front, um, codes are important, but they're also woefully behind where we need them to be to go to the point uh, that I think Sean made just a minute ago that like these are our homes and we can build better buildings than we are providing for people right now. Um, buildings use about 40% of our energy across the United States and in major cities that goes up to about 75% um, or actually over about 80% during periods of peak demand. And so this is a legal minimum standard that we can use to build better. Put out there like you know, fire sprinklers. Fire sprinklers are a great example of what we're using to like what we're following because fire sprinklers show that cities could address fire as a danger and then adopt the fire code just within a city. Because in California, lots of cities adopted them before they became statewide, and that's the same process trend we're trying to follow to put the fire out, so to speak, of climate change is going city by city in California and other states now and having them adopt a public health and safety code saying using fossil fuels is too dangerous. You know, it's, it's triggering wildfires all around us, the climate change that we're going into. So yeah, fire sprinklers are a good example of sort of uh, how climate change is coming to the building code, really. It's, mm -hmm. We're using the exact same legal pathway, public health and safety. Panama, any thoughts from you? You know, building codes are basically the the minimum that a society expects from its builders. I mean, and there's probably no greater expression of its values than in laws like that. Um, like how how do you how does the government view um, its role in protecting citizens? And historically, you know, it's been structural, it's been fire safety, and as Sean and Kim have mentioned, we've now started to move into energy and climate. Um, as key areas where governments are recognizing that they need to play a role in protecting general public health and safety. And so that is why we're moving towards these all-electric codes now. Great. Well, you queued up uh, my next question. Um, the notion of an all-electric code is relatively new. Um, tell us a bit more about what that entails. What does that look like? So an all-electric code um, would require that a building is not connected to the natural gas network and that um, for all of its heating appliances, its space heating, its water heating, its food heating, its clothes heating, potentially its fireplaces or barbecues, um, any, any sort of a heating appliance or other appliance are all run off of electricity. Um, and so the code actually would require um, either a house or a building to be built um, to be using only electricity 
Um, or sometimes it's it's done in the negative, saying that it may not be connected uh, to the natural gas network. And we're seeing it really take off in the era of climate change, because when you look at it, buildings are one of the few areas that local governments really have a lot of control over when it comes to addressing climate change. Um, they uh, Local governments uh, don't really have a lot of control over vehicle efficiency or fuels. Um, land use changes take a long time to have a significant impact. Um, a lot of um, industrial processes and agriculture outside many city boundaries. And so buildings are one that are clearly within the authority of local governments. And so we're starting to see local governments look to all electric codes as a key climate change measure. I put out there that <clears throat> these building codes are supposed to help builders build for less cost. Like we've spoken a lot about public safety and the service of the public, but the law in California is that our energy code has to be of service to the owner and the builders to build a lower cost building over the course of 25 years. So what you've seen in the United States is that since 1950, the majority of our water heaters that have been installed have been electric. Same with 19, since 1970 for our space heating, the majority in our country is electric. 61% of our stoves sold every year are electric and 88% of our dryers. So what we're doing is trying to codify what the country has already essentially agreed upon. Building electric appliances into a house is less expensive. It goes up faster. It's also safer. Um, but for the sake of builders, it's, it's faster and cheaper, the, the things that they care about the most. So hopefully this effort is also a way of bringing the benefits of all electric design to uh, people's homes in a codified way. <laughs> and, you know, and there's the greater good have to address climate change, but also it's it's like everyone agrees this is a better way to build, and they've been agreeing on it for 70 years. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's not that wild and crazy. And in doing so, helping to bring down the costs of some of these newer technologies like heat pumps and induction stoves, and the more efficient versions of water heaters and uh, HVAC systems that uh, benefit the consumer from day one. Um, so that's another component. Um, I, I skipped over this in the beginning, and I, and I want to make sure we clarify it because it is different from state to state. You have these code-setting entities, um, but effectively it still lies with every state legislature and then from there down to the local government level to actually adopt, enforce, and uh, codify these codes. Um, how different is that process from state to state and or are there major differences that are notable across the country? Oh boy, Sarah, that's a really good question. Um, it is very different from state to state. Um, I would say there are probably 50 different versions of how states and municipalities adopt codes. That's probably not entirely true. Um, but you're right. Ultimately, it's the states and cities that adopt the code. The code writing bodies just write them. They have, there is no federal code. Um, everything is done on that more local level. And then, you know, even depending on where you live in a state, who enforces your code may be different. It may be a city. It may be a county. It may be a state fire marshal. Um, and so there's a lot of different variety out there in how these things are actually implemented once you get down to that uh, that level of actual regulation. Ah, the, the infamous American patchwork. 
There is one federal code that's a drag. That's the federal minimum efficiency standard for water heaters and space heaters because it's been set so low that, as an example, um, a, a, a heat pump that heats the air, it can have an HSPF, a heating seasonal, heating seasonal performance factor of 8.2, but the products now go up to 15. Um, same thing with water heaters. The minimum is a coefficient of performance of 2.0, but they're sold now at COPs of 5. It, so the standard, the base standard does not move in many years, but the product market has moved dramatically. I kind of wish that the federal government under the Biden administration would move up the bar a little bit to acknowledge that products have dramatically improved so that those two things, base heating and water heating, would start having a higher baseline. And it's just cost effective. Like it makes so much more sense for owners to have a slightly more efficient heat pump than the federal minimum. So that'd just be the one caveat. There's one tiny bit of code that would actually help us save the world, so to speak, mm-hmm. is um, pushing heat pumps into having a higher performance at a code minimum. Absolutely, and a very good point. Sorry, I was going to say, I think that echoes through a lot of other um, things we we, get, we put into our buildings as well. Um, when you're looking for something at that really high efficiency level, often because the federal standards are so low, it is harder to get that better performing piece of equipment. So even um, like well-informed and like, you know, decision make, well-informed decision makers that are going through this process and want the best that they can get um, because they know that it's cost-effective and it will make sense in the long run, have a hard time obtaining those uh, because manufacturers are not looking towards anything that is substantially beyond that federal minimum. Uh, because they just don't have to produce such a thing. You see that in other countries, though? It's kind of embarrassing. I talk with heat pump manufacturers, and they say, Americans don't care about efficiency. We don't bring our best stuff to the United States. We, we you know, sell in Japan and China and elsewhere where they have much higher efficiency standards. We don't even bring it to the U.S. You don't care. Ouch. <laughs> Brutal conversation. Yeah. No, that's exactly. I've had conversations like that. I know exactly that conversation. Wow. Well, hopefully, um, yeah, hopefully we'll see a shift in the coming years under the Biden administration to restore uh, some of America's integrity internationally on a number of fronts. Um, but I don't want to get us too sidelined, although that's a fascinating topic. <laughs> um, so, Kim, before we move on from codes, I know you've been working on uh, to advance another concept within the code field, and it's a, called a decarbonization code. So tell us a little bit about what that entails and how it might work. Yeah, I mean, I think it is very similar to what Panama is calling an all-electric code. Um, But we've been talking about it at NBI as um, looking at the code from a carbon perspective instead of an energy perspective. And so basically replacing the energy code with a a decarbonization code or a carbon code. Um, And what my team has been working on specifically is breaking down the pieces that are going into the most recent 2021 version of the International Energy Conservation Code, which should be published any day now. Um, and focusing on new construction first and you know, dividing out residential and commercial, common fossil fuel end uses, unitized versus central systems, 
and a variety of ways that jurisdictions will be able to um, put together an overlay when they would go to adopt the new energy code that would be, it will be ready made for them to be um, either an all electric ready step or an all electric step. So we'll be publishing both versions of those. Um, basically thinking that communities might not, are not all ready to make it jump the whole way to all electric right now, but that we can sort of future proof any new construction that they are building with an all electric ready uh, step of the code. And then for, for cities and jurisdictions that are ready to go the whole way, then the all electric version is there. Um, but again, it's framed in terms of the, the scope and intent of the code as a focus shifting to carbon. Um, you know, I, for us, this is a really important time to get this framework out there. Um, the 2021 IECC had some basic efficiency gains that make it about 10% better than the last energy code. And so that efficiency gives us a real opportunity now um, you know, to Sean's point, the conversation we were just having, you need some efficiency really built into these codes at a real basic level to be able to move to all electric to maintain that cost effectiveness conversation. And so we sell this code as sort of the time and the opportunity to push um, electrification, knowing that that is the solution to decarbonization out through code language that is easy for cities and states to adopt. Well, it seems very logical to me. Are, are, is it gaining traction anywhere? Or is it still kind of in development? It's still in development. We have a good amount of interest. Um, the, the Our overlay should be published in January. Um, so we'll be a little late for your Christmas present, Sarah, for the all-electric home um, in code. For Christmas, but if you'll accept a late Christmas present, um, we're, we're, we're planning to publish in January. I would say the holdup to our team right now is that the 2021 IECC has not been fully published as of today right now when we're talking. Right. Um, and so we do need to coordinate like administratively the numbering and, you know, stuff like that. So, so that may be a little bit of a holdup to us. So we're still hoping that January we'll get it out there. Um, and we think that's when states and cities are really going to start to look at the 2021 cycle for adoption um, anyway. So we think it'll be good timing. Great. Yeah, absolutely. And I will always accept late Christmas presents any time of the year, really. I mean, I don't, I'm not uh, going to discriminate. <laughs> Um, so Panama, you mentioned, uh, and Sean, you also mentioned that we're seeing this push to adopt all electric codes at the local level. Um, I'm curious if you can articulate a little bit more about what kind of pushback we're seeing, uh, and, and from whom. Yeah, we're, we're seeing a pushback from uh, a number of groups. Um, and this is largely, we're seeing this expressed. Um, in California, but also a number of other states. Um, in California, it's in direct opposition to already adopted codes at the local level. Um, and in other states, it's preemptory. We're seeing the gas industry sponsor legislation um, in other states to prevent local governments from even being able to consider and then adopt their own local reach codes. So what we're seeing in the opposition is perhaps unsurprisingly um, coming from the gas industry, um, the methane industry themselves, um, and um, their unions. You know, this is an existential threat to this industry. Um, and once you start to 
take out some of the demand side and really um, it sends a ripple effect all the way up through their extraction, their futures and investor confidence in this industry. And so the workers within the industry are definitely concerned um, as well and are powerful players um, in politics. Um, builders associations as well. Um, you know, we see a number of individual builders, and as Sean said, you know, we've been we've been building majority all electric buildings around this country for decades now. But nobody likes mandates, and uh, and so home builders associations they generally speak for the lowest common denominator among their membership, and we're seeing significant pushback. Um, we did a bunch of surveys with home builders in California: market rate, affordable, production, custom, up and down California to really try to pick apart. You know, what do they think about building electrification? What are their concerns? And it was amazing to me that it basically came down to cooking and that we have been demonizing um, electric cooking for decades now. And um, and that while they recognize that induction cooking, magnetic induction cooking is amazing and people love it when they try it, they don't know how to sell it. And so the wake up call for me after we did this major survey was that one of the most uh, significant reasons that we're expanding the gas system is because of a fear of selling uh, electric cooking. A simple, you know, maybe $1,000, $1,500 appliance is dictating the um, outlay of billions of dollars of natural gas infrastructure for housing developments. Um, restaurant associations, I think we have a real um, conversation to be had about uh, decarbonizing the, the food service industry and, and how to do it. I think that, um, you know, we as energy um, energy-focused uh, folks, we can see what a continued reliance upon a creaky gas system um, and fossil fuels uh, looks like, and it's the most expensive pathway forward. But restaurant associations, they don't you know, spend their, their morning doom-scrolling climate news, and so they may not be up on the future of natural gas over the next 20 years, and and they, they know what they cook with now, and um, and they have a hard time imagining um, what it looks out into the future. Um Every major fast food franchise in America has a natural gas option and a all electric option for franchisees. And so if you're a uh, franchisee, it's one of the first choices you make because no matter if you have natural gas network anywhere in America, you need to have your fast food. And so they have uh, fast food, all electric fast food options. Um, so most everything you do in the back of a kitchen that doesn't involve direct flame, um, like barbecue, um, or charbroiled, you can do um, all electric. Um, realtors um, have have come out strongly as well. Um, the realtors are a very powerful group within politics. Um, a lot of uh, resources to bring to bear, um, and then apartment owners associations um, as well. And so, um, and again, people don't like mandates, and they're um, while we've been building all electric um, all over the country. Um, we haven't been looking at mandates to build all electric. And so there's a, I think a general immediate pushback from trade associations about any conversations around uh, mandates. So those are the main groups mm -hmm. that we're seeing a lot of opposition from, I would say. Interesting. One quick point on the resistance to um, the switch from electric or excuse me, the switch from gas to electric cooking, um, I think it's notable that Martha Stewart herself on her website has uh, started to really talk about the pros and, and cons of induction cooking, but she's also got a whole induction cookware 
collection, and she's she's pushing it pretty hard. So you know, if if the likes of Martha Stewart can get behind it, I would think we can get uh, you know more folks to to get on board with that. Um, that is on my Christmas wish list. I don't think I'm going to get it this year, but I might. <laughs> Depends on how good I've been. Um, that's really helpful, Panama. Thanks for that. Um, I want to switch gears with uh, the focus on new construction um, being kind of what we've emphasized, but now you know, the vast majority of our homes are already built and getting uh, buildings to retrofit and swap out from fossil fuels and and move to electric is a a harder undertaking. And there are a lot more um, challenges on the horizon to to make that happen. Um, Sean, your business and what you're really working on is focusing on some of this uh, retrofit market. So Tell us a little bit more about what it's what it looks like to shift to all electric, what it entails, and what you're seeing in the in the work you're doing. Sure. Well, in 2017, um, PG notified me I had an explosive gas leak in my front yard. So while I had been encouraging like designing all electric apartment complexes 100% solar powered, I've been doing that since like 2005, and I've been slowly removing gas loads from my house. In 2008, I put in a heat pump for space heating etc. the electric dryer. Uh, it was in 2017 that um, I completely got rid of it. All of the gas devices in my house had the gas line shut down. And then two months later, my, my um, mother-in-law died in the tubs fire in Santa Rosa, which was the, the first of the really um, catastrophic climate change-induced fires that we've been seeing every year now in 2017. So, um, that was a, a one-two punch in the fall of 2017 that convinced me that uh, not only was it personally dangerous, obviously, I, if my house could blow up just for the sake of me having a gas stove, um, that was one level of danger. If my, if, you know, there's a funeral for my mother-in-law because of the next level of danger. So I, I have definitely um, re- responded to the reality of danger. I would generally encourage people every time they're replacing any appliance to get the the better version, which is the electric version. You know, the gas stoves are not as controllable. They're not as fast. So I've gone to all these three Michelin star restaurants, you know, the, the elite of the elite restaurants in the world. And about two thirds of the kitchens and back are all electric. Because if you're cooking a really amazing meal, um, you have all sorts of glazes and sauces and things that need to be kept at certain temperatures, or you have to distribute a lot of food quickly. Um, as an example, a deep fat fire, you can get 20% more French fries in an hour out of an electric fire than you can from a gas fire because gas fryers can't reheat as fast as electric fryers can. So I focus on people just like take a step up in luxury. So your gas dryer broke. Why don't you get the condensing washer dryer, the one that does all the jobs in one box with the LG model, which is the big one, the American size one. And I have many friends now who've gotten them, and we all universally love them because they'll even text you when your laundry's done. You don't have to transfer them between one machine and the other. Finally. Yeah, exactly. It's magic. <laughs> Waste a whole weekend driving people around. Get the laundry out of the washing machine. Um, so it's like a stepwise improvement generally. You know, every time you, you have that, you're in the mood for getting the new appliance or the old one's broken. Um, that's the time to electrify. And each time you're going to get a better product out of it. So there's no going down. You just go up. Like a heat pump for space heating makes your house way more comfortable because it's quieter. 
and it makes your house just suffused with warmth because it always runs at a low, quiet speed as opposed to turning on and off at a, a high volume of heat, like furnaces. On, off, on, off. It's noisy and drafty, and you don't get, like, a, a suffused heat through your house. So that's what I'm saying. Like, it's, it's always a, an improvement, um, but no one has tons of money, so we all just need to do this as we make the choice to improve our old product is broken. Or your life is in danger, and that's also a good reason. Right. Yeah, I think that's an important message. You don't have to, you know, even though the title of this is a, All I Want for the Holidays is an all-electric home, that's a great uh, starting point for those who can buy new or ho- who have the means to swap everything out in one sitting. But the reality is most of us are going to have to do this, you know, a piece of equipment at a time. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's important to also keep in mind that the life, the life cycle that you have remaining on your HVAC system or your water heater and consider replacing it before they go out. I've had them go out, and that is a very uncomfortable set of days before between, uh, you know, when it goes out and when you get the new one. So, I was gonna say, yeah, you might want to schedule it. And I was gonna also add that, you know, I'm, I'm giving away two induction ranges this Christmas um, to friends. Like one, my brother, one's a friend. But basically, it's Christmas time, so you can get like a nice quality new electric stove, an induction one. You kind of go on the countertop for like a hundred to two hundred dollars. And you can change someone's life because it's so much more fun to cook on induction. So anyway, that's a stocking stuffer for me, um, <laughs> for family members and friends. Nice. Extra large stocking. Um, so I wanted to, you know, my favorite question on, on my show is what are the policy and regulatory challenges and or solutions to really help get exi- more existing homes and buildings to switch to all electric? Panama, maybe I'll start with you. Sure. So when I look at this, I think it really comes down to two major issues, maybe three, and that is um, market certainty and then value propositions. And lastly, getting barriers out of the way for the supply chain. So, uh, you know, on the market certainty, um, one of the biggest issues that we deal with when we're trying to electrify our homes is uh, contractors who are just not as interested in electrifying our homes as we are. Um, They install gas appliances. Um, They are very busy doing it. Um, And they either haven't been trained or are not interested or have biases against all electric. And so um, ultimately, if we're going to meet any of our climate goals, we're going to need to phase out gas appliances. And what the market really needs is it needs official phase-out dates whether that be at the local level, at the state level, or the federal level, we need to be sending some certainty to the entire supply chain and the installers about when we're going to stop selling these so that we can start getting that community um, over onto the all-electric installations. Um, A key part of that is going to be the value proposition. And so it's the value propositions for customers because we don't want to be selling something to customers that um, doesn't work from an economic perspective for them. And then the contractor value proposition as well. And so for customers, we need to be putting in place policies um, in order to deal with the upfront costs. And so how do we reduce any potential um, cost premium between an all electric um, appliance and a gas appliance? And then we need to make sure that our rates are right. Um, historically, we've had um, high electricity rates in order to um, in order to be able to implement 
some public policy um, around conservation. Um, and but now we face a situation where our grid is getting cleaner and cleaner. We should actually be using more of that grid, that clean electricity, in order to decarbonize the transportation, the electricity, industrial sectors. And so we need to make sure that the rates are actually rewarding the switch over to electricity from natural gas rather than punishing it. Um, the contractor value proposition and the need for policy there is really one of program design. You know, those same rebates that can come from ratepayer funds or, or other government programs in order to bring down the upfront costs for customers, they're also going to be improving the value proposition for installers. But the key here is really how do we design the program and do we design programs that work well for contractors? Um, we, we've done that for solar um, in America. where And because of that, we've been able to build um, a really robust solar industry um, we have not done that well for energy efficiency, um, particularly at the residential level. And so we we don't see the same type of scaling of energy efficiency businesses as we have in the solar industry. And so things like immediate midstream rebates so that the price, um, the improved price on the product is reflected um, at the retail uh, establishment or at the distributor. Um, so there's an immediate benefit to the contractor when they're buying that unit to bring to your house. Um, and then downstream rebates to cover the cost of any kind of infrastructure upgrades that we need, um, such as uh, wiring or panel upgrades um, in the building. And so I think the, the certainty of a regulation, um, like a phase-out date, and then um, improving investment in bringing down the upfront costs to improve the uh, the value proposition, getting the rates right are the key policies I think we need. Great. Well, clearly you've given this a lot of thought and uh, a lot to do, but nice to know we have a, a general sense of what needs to happen. Kim or Sean, any other thoughts on the policy and regulatory levers that we need to pull to get our building stock shifted over to all electric? Uh, I think I think all of Panama's points are right on, um, and I want to just call out um, something that we're seeing being done in a few cities right now across the country, and um, watching about a dozen cities uh, sort of take note and follow along that hit some of uh, those points around um, market certainty and establishing um, that value proposition, which is um, something called building performance standards. Um, which is a specific regulation geared at dealing with um, the efficiency and carbon impact of existing buildings as opposed to codes, which, like we, like you said, like generally talk about new buildings. Um, and so, you know, right now there are four of these that exist in sort of certainty in New York City, Washington, D.C., um, Washington State, and St. Louis, Missouri, have building performance standards in place, but we're watching a bunch of other um, cities and states really follow along to see what the impact of those could be. And, and the reason that they are so appealing is that they they do sort of, you know, attempt to do those three things that Panama was saying, like they give a market certain date with a deadline and a standard, um, you know, either carbon emissions or, or an energy use intensity standard that buildings need to meet. Um, and then, you know, in just doing that first act, I think they're creating these sort of like value proposition um, and removing barriers in and of themselves. 
um, in that they are sort of driving a market for uh, manufacturers to produce certain types of equipment and for contractors to sell and install um, that better equipment when those, you know, periods um, for swapping out equipment are coming up in those existing building stock. Um, and so, you know, I say we hope to see how that type of policy, um, especially targeting larger buildings, can be paired with some other policies that would target things like single family residential to really move this forward. But yeah, those main points I think are, are right on. I'll chime in there and I'll say what excites me the most right now is what the Air Resources Board is proposing, zero NOx appliance standards. So NOx, like nitrogen oxide, uh, these cause asthma in their products of fossil fuels, particularly your gas stove, which is a, like the number one source of NOxes in your life. If you're in your kitchen when you're burning your gas stove, you're almost certainly being exposed to a poisonous level of NOx, like worse than the smog outside your house. And in fact, buildings cause smog. There are significant contributors to smog in the Bay Area, like the majority in the winter at times. So the Air Resources Board, which is dealing, California has illegal air. Like 90% of Californians have been breathing illegal quality air since the 1970s. Generations of people have grown up with asthma because of our air quality. So finally, our Air Resources Board and the management districts, um, these are the people who have created standards for cars that the like 14 other states follow or... Um, furnace standards, low NOx furnace standards that other states have followed. Uh, uh, this agency in California, which has a special legal charge to give people clean air <laughs> to breathe, um, they're saying that they're going to start incentivizing appliance switchouts to no knock appliances, which is electric appliances, um, to start dealing with our poisonous air. And and just seeing how that, that regulatory agencies have the ability to affect um, federal law. Um, I'm, I'm very hopeful in other states' laws. I'm hopeful that that's going to be one of the paths or we just acknowledge that we need to be able to breathe our air. And therefore, we have to stop using these gas appliances, not even for climate change, which is the paramount, absolutely have to address it, but even for the immediate, like your lungs hurt kind of experience. Your kid has asthma. Isn't that a drag for the rest of their life? You know, not as much athletics. They might have issues going to the hospital because $3,000 a year on average if you have asthma with all the different medications and an occasional hospital visit. Um, so it's, that's what I'm hoping we're, we're going to see movement, quick movement. Yeah, really great point. And as I sit here in Salt Lake City, Utah, we're in, in the middle of one of our famous red air inversions um, in which, yeah, we are breathing air that is, uh, they've said, is worse than some of the worst days in Beijing, uh and uh, yeah, I feel it. I feel it. And it's from cars, it's from buildings, it's from industry. And everyone, every one of those entities wants to point the finger at the other. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's all of it. So we got to start chipping away. Um, and Sean, your point is a good segue into the broader topic of equity, environmental justice, these disproportionate health impacts on uh, frontline communities and lower income people. Um, what should we be doing right now to really ensure that not only do all people have the opportunity to benefit from the shift to all electric, but that we are adequately addressing these disproportionate impacts and rectifying some of these longstanding uh, societal and environmental injustices? I'll take a quick whack at that. As you mentioned, I work on affordable housing. And um, so all of our developments that we support are 
is people who are disadvantaged by definition. Um, the number one thing to do is replace the gas stove. Uh, formaldehyde that comes from gas stoves is the number one source of formaldehyde in people's lives. Formaldehyde causes leukemia in both pets and in children. In the nitrogen dioxide, that come, nitrogen dioxide and other oxides that come off the stove, those cause asthma. About 12% of asthmatics have asthma because of their gas stove. And it's disproportionate in the lower income households and people of color. We're getting like one out of three kids are getting asthma. It's a huge asthma rate. And it's, it's directly attributed to people huffing invisible poisonous gases that come off of stoves. You know, only about one in three cooking experiences do people even turn on a hood when it, over a gas stove. And in fact, it should be nonstop at all moments because you might as well just stick your face over a, like a, the, the muffler of your car. It's the same gas. It's not quite as dirty with PM, so you don't see it as clearly, but it's the same pollution as what comes off your car. And you just, you know, <laughs> filling up your kitchen with that. So that's that's like a number one for people's immediate benefits as children, so their whole lives aren't cursed, is to get rid of the gas stoves. In California, we see people still being allowed to put in um, refineries immediately next to residential neighborhoods. That's true in Colorado. It's true in much of the country in Pennsylvania, where you can you can have a well that's emitting huge amounts of, of fossil fuel pollution, poisoning nearby communities or storage facilities. We had Aliso Canyon in California, which is right outside of LA, and had this massive community poisoning experience, which was for affluent people who were living up in the hills, where that um, underground cavern that's storing about a fourth of California's stored gas. Uh, Oh, that's a little side note there. I want to point out that people don't realize that we need to store gas in order to have enough in the winter. And storing gas is dangerous. There are four big underground gas storage facilities in California. And they're old and they leak. And they're dangerous. And if we didn't have them, we wouldn't have enough gas for the winter. Like it's been a problem when some of these facilities and distribution systems in California have been shut down. We get like 90% of our gas from out of state. So I would say that focusing on on not polluting children, a big one is getting the stove out of the house, and the second one is getting refineries away from schools and people places where people live, because those are um, those are both well known immediate poisoning experiences. Yeah, all really good points and very stark uh, situation we're facing. Panama or Kim, do you have any thoughts about? how to really make sure this shift to all electric is equitable, including any programs or incentives or uh, models that we're seeing out there that are proving to be promising. First and foremost, we need to actually come to grips that we are doing this transition and that, um, that our, our climate goals, our clean energy goals and our, our equity goals will require it of us, and we need to get started on the strategic planning of it. Um, the worst thing that we can do for uh, for low-income communities and disadvantaged communities is a continued reliance and build-out of the natural gas network. Um, the second worst thing is a haphazard approach to um, electrification. Um, and because what will happen is people that can afford to get off the gas grid will get off the gas pipeline 
and uh, the people that can't afford to or don't have the agency to make choices around appliances like renters um, will be will be left on it with ever increasing rates. And so we need to start uh, strategic proceedings in each state about the wind down of the gas system. And inherent in that needs to be principles of equity so that we're investing um, in low-income housing and disadvantaged communities to make sure that we're not leaving them on the gas grid. And um, a key part of that does need to be programs um, that are directly in investing in housing um, for low-income communities, but also businesses in low-income communities um, as well. And so they should be some of the first um, places of investment of our electrification uh, programs uh, moving forward. And a key part of that certainty um, does need to be, again, phase-out dates for gas appliances, um, preferably with funding for, for low-income communities so that um, you make sure that low-income um, residents um, aren't bearing um, a disproportionate burden of the cost of this transition um, as, as we are making it. Absolutely. Good points. Uh, Kim, anything to add there? No, I think um, I just echo everything that that Panama said. Um, <laughs> I was taking notes and I was like, oh, you caught all of them. <laughs> well, I'll add one to the mix. I think, uh, you know, we we tend to focus on houses that are owned, uh, but there are a lot of renters out there. There's a lot of multifamily um, and you know, landlords don't have very much incentive either to to motivate to help uh, their tenants who pay the bills typically uh, make any major changes. Usually it's a least common denominator operation. Um, uh, some landlords out there are doing great things, but a lot of them are just trying to make the slim margins that they have on their property. And uh, so it would be great to, to to figure out what sort of balanced incentive structure could be made to incentivize both landlord and tenant and also help with education and some of the outreach that has to happen uh, to get both parties in sync. Um, so that would be one I would add to the mix. I want to offer a complete counter thinking on that. That is not at all my experience. My experience is that landlords are the best place to do electrification. That's my experience. Because if they pair it with raising rent, the entire business of being a landlord is about rent, nothing else. And most landlords don't like dealing with incentives. They'd make a lot more money doing a new development than they would chasing down a little bit of pennies from some utility. That's the fact. You just see that. That's how the world is. But if you help landlords raise the rent in a way that is protective of the tenants, of course, so it's not too much, and they get a disproportionate benefit, and because when you electrify, nationally in the country, if you electrify a residence, that means you've lowered the utility bills. That's not in every single state, like Wisconsin's not a good state for that, but the majority of states, like two-thirds of them, it's actually a bill benefit. You can see that from like the yellow tags that you get when you go to the, buy appliances. <clears throat> Electric appliances have smaller bills for water heating, drying, etc. That's the fact on average. So if you will help a landlord raise the rent by $30 a month, or $40 a month, either with a program or just say, hey, everybody, I, I run a program where I explain to people how to raise rent fairly. That would be so successful because you're right. Like 40% of Americans live in a rental. Like, you know, 30% live in apartments, another 10% live in rental homes. And uh, so that's 
four in 10 Americans who can be benefited by what is already a very standard practice, raising rent. <laughs> and, and just the important thing is flipping that around so that there's an electrification retrofit attached to it. But um, I work with landlords and they love doing that work. That's how they make money. And I talk with the tenants afterwards. They've gotten a new solar array and all new appliances. Totally a fair deal. They, they love it. I keep in mind that the number one use of payday loans in the United States is paying utility bills. Mm -hmm. And the average length of that 400% loan is six months. So having high utility bills is terrible because it happens in, this, in like at Christmas time. People get these huge bills for winter heating. And during the summer, just before kids go to school, if you can lower people's bills and then have that become a stable amount of monthly rent, that's what benefits people on fixed income is to transfer that irregular up and down catastrophic utility bill into just a stable rent increase. Um, that's the win-win. Great. No, I like that. Uh, I like that model. And I'm glad to hear you're having those conversations and out there uh, making those, brokering those deals and, and helping those transitions happen. Um, well, we are winding down our time. This has been a fascinating conversation. And frankly, there's much more to uncover here. But um, I want to wrap up this holiday themed podcast with a, a holiday themed question. Um, and I'll, I'll make it a two parter. What gift does an all electric house give you? And what's the best electric themed gift that you can give this season? I'll start with you, Kim. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I think the, we've talked a little bit about it already today, um, but the gifts from an all electric house are going to be comfort and safety primarily. Um, I think it, hopefully what Sean just alluded to about stabilization of income uh, and bill flows also holds true. Um, hopefully quickly across all of the states and not just, uh, you know, focusing on this about two thirds of them. Um, so, you know, I hope we can all benefit from, from something like that. Um, you know, I have a lot of friends who are interested in camping. Um, I live in Maine and so there's a lot of outdoor activity. And, um, one of my friends I saw was asking for a solar powered, um, French press coffee maker, that's an insulated cup, French press, and heater all in one. Um, and it, it plugs into a solar bank. And so I am considering that my best clean electric theme gift to give this season. Um, and I'm definitely getting it for one person. Excellent. What a great idea. That would be a fun gift to get. Panama, how about you? What gift does an all-electric house give you and others? And what clean electric theme gift will you be thinking about this year? Well, when I think of the holidays, I think clean, comfortable, and high performance all the time, just like everybody else. And um, that's what an all-electric house really gives you. Um, it makes, you know, we're spending more time in our houses than we ever have. Um, and around the holidays, generally, we're, we're bundled up together in there. You want to make sure that the air quality is the best of air quality and that you have really comfortable environment to be enjoying each other. Um, and you're not paying a, a high bill to do it. And so that's the, all the gifts that an electric house gives you. And I'm going to probably steal what Sean is going to say. And I would say, you know, an excellent um, in two burner electric burner, burner probably the Eurodiv um, would be a fantastic uh, gift for folks. It's hard to give an HVAC system, um, but a two burner induction burner is like, is, it'll blow people's socks off and, 
will have the same reaction that everybody has when they cook with induction for the first week. It's, oh my, I had no idea. Very cool. Okay. Well, how about you? Um, well, I do think it's important to hand out induction ranges, but um, I have been giving out a lot, a lot of electric lighters. So these are fun. You, you, they have a double arc of electricity, and you want to touch it because it kind of looks like it's electricity. It's fun, but it'll shock you. But you can use these to start campfires. And then if you get a biolite camp stove, which is where it burns a little space in the vortex of a, with a fan, it's electric-assisted, and it comes to the battery, and it makes its own electricity through what's called a Stirling engine, where you transmit heat into electricity. Basically, this little tiny fire, which runs on twigs, which you can find at any campsite, then charges like a a light or your headlamp, and it can charge the lighter. So you can go out camping and having an electric lighter um, and a little cool tiny stove that just burns twigs. You don't have to bring firewood or anything, and you can just sort of go indefinitely. You could camp as long as you wanted with those two things. Um, That's those are inexpensive. A biolite's like a hundred bucks, and electric lighters are about twenty dollars. And um, and get the ones that have the the cross on the top of it, because that way you can poke it at things to light them, as opposed to the ones that have the cross inside a little metal bracket. It's hard to use that because the bracket prevents you from accessing the hot electricity. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Awesome. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Happy Hanukkah. Well, thank you guys. Great gift list and uh, also great reminders that uh, our homes really are so important to us and we need to continue to focus on them as a key pathway to decarbonize our economy. Um, This has been such a great conversation. Thanks for the taking the time to be with me today. Uh, Electrify This is an Energy Innovation original podcast. For those wanting more information about today's show and some additional links, guest bios, etc., all are available at energyinnovation.org forward slash electrify this. And uh, thank you to our sound engineer, Rowan Stigner, with the Audio Inn in Salt Lake City. Uh, Very special thanks to our guests, Kim, Sean, Panama. Thank you guys so much. Glad to be here. Yeah, thank you, Sarah. Thanks, Sarah. And a great and special thanks to our listeners and subscribers. Thanks for tuning in. Um, If you would, please do subscribe, follow, and give us a review where you find your podcasts. And uh, I'm your host, Sarah Baldwin, and you're plugged in to Electrify This.